Eagle Vision's production of Taken, the podcast, deals with mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. When I found out I was having a daughter, and I thought about all the stories that were being told about our women going missing, being murdered, living in fear of violence, I became frightened and afraid for her life. So I called my business partner, my spirit brother, Kyle, and I was in tears. I started searching for how I could save her life before she was even born. I came up with an idea that would introduce safe ways and proactive ways of helping other families and started having discussions with loved ones of women and girls who had gone missing or had been killed. When my daughter was born, it was an amazing experience. But I also knew what she was up against, being an Indigenous girl who would grow into an Indigenous woman. That's how the Taken series was born. The Taken podcast came out of that. Taken is a series about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. I'm Lisa Meaches. Thousands of mothers, daughters, wives, sisters, friends, taken from across the country from every province and every territory. Some brutalized, some murdered, most never to be seen again. The number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada is staggering and growing. The issue has sparked international outrage and calls for action. While the issue has been going on for decades, only now is it getting mainstream attention. Here in Canada, politicians, media, law enforcement, and the families left behind are joining together to seek answers to serve justice, and to make sure that no one is silenced by acts of violence. We need your help. At any time during this podcast or afterward, if you have any information that might help solve these cases, visit our website. Someone out there has answers. Our goal is to find them. Each episode of Taken will honor the stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada like the little 15-year-old whose body was found in 2014 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, igniting the conversation. Her name was Tina Fontaine. Tina Fontaine was reported missing on August 9, 2014, and then found in the Red River on August 17 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She had been murdered at a press conference that broke the news of the discovery of Tina's body wrapped in a duvet cover. Even Winnipeg police were shocked. At the press conference, Sergeant John O'Donovan spoke from the gut. I think, you know, society, we'd be horrified if somebody put, uh, if we found a, a litter of kittens or pups in the river in this condition, this is a child. So, I mean, society should be horrified. Tina Fontaine's murder sparked outrage and fear. She was a vulnerable child who was brutalized and dumped into the river with the intentions of never being found. Circumstances beyond her control led her down a path that no child should have to endure. 
Before Tina's death, she lived with her great aunt, Thelma Favel, in Seguin First Nation. After her father's murder in 2011, Tina gradually reconnected with her estranged mother and siblings in Winnipeg. Thelma was hesitant to let Tina go visit, but didn't want to deny her that connection to family. Thelma's face is heavy with grief as she talks about the first time she let Tina go. She was happy because she was going to see her sisters again, because that's all she ever talked about was her sisters. Never saw too much about her mother. It was always about her sisters. And that, like, you know, that, that's what... I just thought that, like, you know, everything would be okay again and that she'd be safe. After a successful first visit, Thelma allowed Tina to visit her family again in June 2014. It was the end of the school year, and all indications from the first visit were that Tina had been safe and would be again. Even then, Thelma took precautions. I gave Tina $60 and a a prepaid long-distance phone card, and I said, phone me if things don't work out. Like, you know, a week for Tina would be too long to be without Sarah. So I told her, like, if things don't, like, you know, if you want to come home sooner, use the card and we'll pick you up. That was my last contact with her. In January of 2015, just months after Tina's body was found, a McLean's Magazine article headlined, Welcome to Winnipeg, where Canada's racism problem is at its worst, challenged the city to confront what it called a festering race problem. The signs welcoming drivers into Winnipeg from all major roadways state that it is the heart of the continent, a reference to its geographical location near the latitudinal center of Canada. Winnipeg's heart is the intersection of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. This historic site was a meeting place and trading grounds for Indigenous people and European settlers for thousands of years before becoming a Winnipeg community area for shopping, dining, concerts, and year-round outdoor activities. Within the Forks is the Udena Celebration Circle. The Udena Circle has become the hub for marches, vigils, and memorials, many of them for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls like Tina. Tina's body was found less than two kilometers away from the Udena Celebration Circle in the Red River, near the Alexander Docks. Sergeant John O'Donovan shares the police account of what happened when Tina left her great-aunt Thelma Favel's home and came to Winnipeg the second and final time to stay with her mother. She gets to gets to the city. She's totally out of her league. She does find her mom, and she doesn't get along with her mom. Hey, how many 15-year-old kids don't get along with their mom? Lots, you know? It, it happens, unfortunately. And she took off the, from there. Tina would spend the next several weeks with a boyfriend on the streets of Winnipeg, living an increasingly perilous lifestyle. More than once, she encountered law enforcement, paramedics, and the city child welfare system. There were numerous chances for authorities to intervene in the life of this troubled child, a fact that Tina's great-aunt Thelma can't forget. August 9th, her name came up through the system. They ran her name through the system, and she was intoxicated. And she's 15 years old, and she looked to be about 12, if you've seen her. And who, like, what authority would let it 
child that's intoxicated go? Like, why didn't they hold on to her? And then for her to be found in the back alley, passed out, and then the paramedics take her to the hospital, and nothing is ever done. With the CFS, they t when they picked, they took her from the hospital, and they just dropped her off back at the hotel. And she, that was the last time she was ever seen. And all they all had that opportunity to hold on to her. At age 15, Tina did not have the maturity or experience to live on her own. Sergeant John O'Donovan describes the events that happened so fast and resulted in the tragedy of losing Tina. No matter what uh, people will say that she worked at or did when she was here, she's still just a kid and she's got no experience of the city. Like um, she could pretend she had and she tried to portray that she had, but literally she's a kid who's been exploited out there. Tina's final downhill spiral was just about two or three days, you know, from when she lost the safety net of the boyfriend and, and the family around her. At two or three days is all she survived. After being reported missing on August 9th, Tina's body was recovered from the river on August 17, 2014. Winnipeg police broke the news to Thelma. I received a phone call from um, the lead investigator and he told me that they pulled her body from the Red River. And uh, so the last time I ever seen Tina was June 30th, 2014. Why did it have to take her death to open up so many people's eyes to show that there is a problem out there with Aboriginal women? For decades, Indigenous women and girls had gone missing, had been murdered in Canada. Some made the headlines, most didn't. What was it about Tina's story that made the world take notice? Bernadette Smith is a member of Manitoba's Legislative Assembly. She is also one of Canada's loudest voices to raise awareness and demand action for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Bernadette's sister, Claudette Osborne Tayo, went missing without a trace in 2008. Claudette is the mother of four children. Bernadette and her family keep Claudette's memory alive with annual vigils and a public concert, No Stone Unturned, that has been going strong for more than 11 years. Bernadette believes that there are answers out there and explains her understanding of why Tina's death may have galvanized the nation. When you're 15 years old and you're disposed of in a garbage bag and just thrown in a river, you know, like you're nothing. I think that those three things, you know, whether she was Aboriginal or not, um, really woke people up. People started to see themselves in, in that situation, that it could be their daughter, you know, that it could be someone that they know. For decades, Indigenous and non-Indigenous voices called out for justice and the disproportionate number of deaths and disappearances of Indigenous women and girls across Canada. Cries for a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls became louder and louder. Tina's tragic death 
brought to life the severity of violence against women and children that demanded action. On December 8, 2015, a little over a year after Tina's body was found in the Red River, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced, A national public inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Canada's former Minister of Justice and Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who is now the independent member of parliament for the British Columbia riding of Vancouver-Granville, was there at the press conference announcing the national inquiry. It is representative of um, a huge amount of effort and work that has been led by Indigenous women, um, Indigenous people generally, by families of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls and survivors that have been strongly advocating for a national inquiry. Tina Fontaine's murder sparked outrage and fear. Could Tina's death have been the catalyst of how bold and widespread the violence had become? Was our collective consciousness awakened? Can Tina's tragic story inspire a nation to work together to make change? Before her murder, the media and headlines, there was a teenager named Tina Fontaine, a young girl who was growing up without her mother in her life and soon without a father. But she had the safety net of her great aunt who she lived with in Saging First Nation. What was life like for Tina before she was murdered? Tina Fontaine grew up in Saging First Nation, 90 minutes northeast of Winnipeg, it is a Treaty 1 community in Anishinaabe territory located at the mouth of the Winnipeg River. There are a little over 3,000 people living in Seguin. In 2012, the community gained national attention when a dance troupe of three young men called Seguin's Finest won the first and only season of the reality competition series, Canada's Got Talent. Tina's great-aunt Thelma Favel was raising her in Seguin before she left for the city to spend time with her mom. Like all communities, like, you know, there's some good times, bad times. Like, you know, there's some good people, bad people, just like everywhere else. Thelma took care of Tina and her sister Sarah after their father, Eugene Fontaine, was diagnosed with cancer. It was a loving and safe environment for the girls for eight years. Well, I was fostering, but it was always older children. And to have a three and a four-year-old, like, you know, it was just like, it was scary at first. But it within no time, Tina just, and Sarah just, like, you know, they just warmed their way into your heart. And, and they were just awesome girls. Tina was known for her kindness and willingness to help others. Uh, there's one child that was in school that was uh, in a wheelchair. And Tina always volunteered to push the wheelchair and to take the little girl outside, take her to the bathroom. And Tina, that's just the way Tina was. She had a big, big heart. She was always a big mother. She was, like, you know, because other kids were being bullied in school. Uh, Tina would take them under her wing and 
And the kids won't, wouldn't be bullied after when they had Tina beside her, even though Tina was tiny. Cindy Gamond, a counselor at Tina's junior high school, remembers Tina's sweet personality. She was just your everyday little girl, you know, walking the halls. She had her her friends. She had her, her friends, but she was overall just a, a girl that got along with everybody. In 2011, Tina and her family suffered a tragic loss when her father was murdered. She was only 11 years old when her dad was murdered. And it was just a shock. That's when I, I noticed Tina sort of like drifting away, but I didn't know how to address it. One of the things I always remember about Tina is the, just the just a sound she made when she found out. It was just a pain, just a pain, you know, they could hear that pain. You know, I think that's when things started to, to change for Tina. After Tina's dad died, her mother, who lived in Winnipeg, made contact. It was a relationship Tina desperately wanted to have. I think Tina was hurting for a long time with just the absence of her mom as well. Moms are important in our life. And, and for Tina, that was something that, um, that was difficult for her. Sergeant John O'Donovan of Winnipeg Police sees the impact of Tina's father's death on her own death. Her dad had died tragically and violently, and she basically ends up, you know, in, in a good home. But she wanted more. She wanted her mom, you know, which is pretty normal. So she, she goes out looking for her mom. She heads into the big city, barely old enough to work at McDonald's, let alone be a, a sex trade worker. So, I mean, you know, she, she wasn't. She's a kid who's been exploited out there. The loss of her father and a damaged relationship with her mother left Tina broken and vulnerable. Her life was taken too soon. Long before Tina's death, the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada was epidemic. But there was something in Tina that sparked an outcry like never before. Whether it was the shocking brutality or the public outpouring of grief, the story began to shine a light on the much larger systemic issues of abuse and racism in Canada. Bernadette Smith, whose sister Claudette is still missing after more than 11 years with no answers, is vocal about the issues that lead to Indigenous women and girls being exploited, going missing and being murdered. A lot of the vulnerability has to do with the policies that have been put in place throughout Canada's history, right? You know, women were just, were disenfranchised. You know, if we were married to a non-Indigenous man, we automatically lost our rights to be an Indigenous woman. If we divorced our husband, you know, we were kicked off the reserve. And if our husband wanted to keep the children, he got to keep the children and everything. We had to leave. Although the issue isn't consistently on the collective consciousness of Canada's general population, it has registered with Craig Benjamin of Amnesty International, a non-governmental organization focused on human rights. Craig coordinates Amnesty International's campaigns in support of the rights of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples in Canada. 
I think that ultimately this is the, the, the product of, of decades and decades of Indigenous women's lives not being valued. Uh, and it's, it's, we see that in the extreme form, in the violence committed by men who target Indigenous women. We see it in, ex in its extreme form when poli police fail to properly investigate a case because it's an Indigenous woman. But this is the, a symptom of a, of a much larger pattern uh, that, that is, was displayed in the, the residential schools. It was this, you know, a pattern of discrimination that played out both in policy and in a thousand minute everyday ways as well. By stripping Indigenous women of their inherent rights, social challenges continue to mount. Shauna Ferris is a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Manitoba. Poverty is a major factor, lack of social supports, um, social supports having to do with family, social supports having to do with housing, social supports having to do with access to a means to sort of support oneself or one's children. Um, all of these kinds of things put people at risk of violence because there are people who prey on uh, the vulnerable and these are things that make people vulnerable. Tina Fontaine was one of the thousands of Indigenous women and girls who was made prey by the person, or the people, who violently took her life. It was feared that Tina's death, like so many others, would go unsolved. Would another killer remain walking among us? With the world's attention on Canada, what would be done to get to the bottom of this issue? Would justice for Tina ever be served? Tina Fontaine's death shocked the nation and exposed the horrific truth about the epidemic of violence against Indigenous women and girls. Could a horrific crime against a 15-year-old girl bring society together to fight for solutions, or was Winnipeg doomed to be a haven for predators? Professor Shauna Ferris of the University of Manitoba speaks about the issues. I've only lived in Winnipeg since 2008. But one of the first things that I heard of when I came here was the case of Tanya Nipanak's disappearance. And then shortly after that, um, Claudette Osborne. And then shortly after that, Jennifer Catchaway. So when I think about Winnipeg, I think about Winnipeg as a city with yet another mass murder problem. <laughs> it's hard for me to think beyond that uh, because of the extreme vulnerabilities that so many Indigenous women and girls experience here. On December 11th, 2015, over a year after her body was pulled from the Red River in Winnipeg, an arrest was made in Tina's case. Then Deputy Police Chief Danny Smythe, now Chief of Police of Winnipeg Police Service, made the announcement. Today, I'm informing the public that Raymond Joseph Cormier has been charged with second degree murder in the death of Tina Fontaine. The arrest in Tina's murder was made possible through an alliance of community, police, media, and overwhelming compassion for this young girl. Indigenous cultural specialist, Mary Wilson, sees Tina's death as a catalyst for change. I do think that Tina's murder has uh, brought it to the forefront because with the way she was discarded, and Tina 
has this face, sweet little baby face. I pray to God that she's a piece of the solution for our future rather than a missing and murdered child from our past. Craig Benjamin of Amnesty International agrees. We've seen a tremendous movement across the country led by Indigenous women that really has, I think, galvanized public opinion. We have seen, as, as a consequence of that advocacy, of that leadership by Indigenous women, we have seen uh, so many politicians, uh, now in fact politicians of all political stripes, you know, speaking out, making commitments uh, to address the violence faced by Indigenous women. For Bernadette Smith, whose own sister Claudette Osborne Tayo is among the missing and murdered, Tina's death and the public's response with marches, vigils, commemorations, and demands for justice marked a change in the community of Winnipeg. I was walking, we were right by the, the Centennial Concert Hall, and there was a man running with, uh, he was pushing a stroller and his wife was holding a little girl's hand. And they were non-Indigenous, he was wearing a suit you know, and clearly not from our end of town. And they were running to join them, the the walk to the forks near Membergoy, feeling very emotional because, and they're realizing it could happen to anyone, but that it affects everyone, whether you're Indigenous or not. Even the way Tina's death was written about Mark to change Tina wasn't referred to as a sex trade worker. She was referred to as a child. According to the Honorable Carolyn Bennett, who has been the Minister of Indigenous Relations for the Liberal Canadian federal government since 2015, the way the stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls have been portrayed has made a definite impact. I think the media have begun to take this very seriously. And I think that that has been um, started probably after um, the murder of Tina Fontaine, that when you think of the activists and the Native Women's Association installation of uh, faceless dolls, that, that since their preliminary advocacy on this, we now know uh, Tina Fontaine, Loretta Saunders, Rennell Harper. These are these are now household names in Canada, and 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 Canadians are asking us to do something to stop this. The changes that Tina Fontaine's death provoked are welcome and long overdue, but nothing will ever bring Tina back to her great aunt Thelma Favel. Winnipeg artist. Gord Hagman painted a portrait of Tina for Thelma and gifted it to her. There's not a day that goes by because of that picture. Some awesome man painted of my baby and I have it in my living room. And so when I go in there, I think that's all I have now is just to say good morning to a picture. And good night. I'll see you in the morning. That's that's all I get to see is the picture. 
In future episodes of the Taken podcast, we will meet other family members, friends, and other loved ones who live with the loss of a missing or murdered Indigenous woman or girl from their lives. We will explore the issues behind the issue, and we will follow up on Tina's case. Was justice served? Can it ever be? For more information about the Taken series, resources, or to share information or tips you may have about any of these cases, visit our website at takentheseries.com or download the free Taken Knowledge Keeper app for iOS or Android. Taken the podcast, Tina Fontaine, was written by Jackie Black and Rebecca Gibson. It was produced by Hannah Johnson, Tyson Karen, Linda Nelson, Norm Lucier and Martin Davis Kinnack, executive produced by Kyle Irving and Rebecca Gibson, and hosted by executive producer Lisa Meaches. Taken, the podcast, was produced by Eagle Vision in 2020. For a full list of credits, visit our website. To watch full episodes of Taken, the television series, visit aptn.ca. Funding for Taken the Podcast provided by the Government of Canada through Women and Gender Equality Canada.